0: Thanks for joining us for the Long Island Sound Podcast. Each week we explore new music and dive deeper with the artists and their stories behind the music. Please subscribe
1: and rate and review us wherever you stream this podcast. Here's your host, Steve Yusko. You know, it took me a while to nail down today's guest, but it was well worth the wait. Kerry Carney is a master slide guitar dobro player, well-known around Long Island, in fact, around the world. He's respected by fellow musicians and has played with an amazing cast of celebrities. We take a wild ride as Kerry recounts so many great stories of his musical career. He's an ambassador to the blues. He's a showman, but I found him to be an easygoing guy. Let's take a listen to his song, Memphis High.
0: I'm love you high and dry Yeah, yeah I'm gonna love you baby But I'm still on a Memphis high yeah. I got sweet Susie on my left And I got sweet Mary on my right Don't know which mile I'm going sweet Mary on my right Don't know which mama I'm gonna love tonight Well, I'd love to love you, mama Love you high and dry Oh, I love you, baby But I'm still on a Memphis high So oh.
1: Kerry Carney has been performing the blues for over 40 years, and his band, the Kerry Carney Band, has been a long-standing staple on the Long Island blues circuit. Combining his master slide guitar prowess with highly original songwriting, Carney has long-dazzled fans and renowned musicians alike with his unique style and sound. He has performed with, and I gotta take a deep breath here, there's a lot of people, Sonny Landreth, Robert Randolph, B.B. King, Robert Cray, Blind Boys of Alabama, and the Blues Brothers. He is open for Billy Gibbons, Kenny Wayne Shepherd, and Leslie West Mountain, featuring the great Warren Hayes. And he's toured with Marty Ballon, and we'll get into more of that. He's the Almond Brothers and Dickie Betts. He's an inductee of the New York Blues Hall of Fame. Carney has earned the respect not only of his fans around the world, but also of his musical peers. And I can attest to that because when I told people who know you that I finally got you on the broadcast, they were like, he's the man. He's got the chop. So welcome to the Long Island Sound podcast, Kerry.
2: Good. So good to have you here. Thank you very much. Thanks for having
1: me. So I'm reaching you in Breezy Point, right? Uh, I'm here Mm -hmm. in Babylon. So we're the garden, we're the garden spot
2: of the world. <laughs> Which one,
1: Babylon or Breezy we're Point? Babylon
2: could be too. It's all go, We're all garden. We live in gardens. It's, you know, garden <laughs> spots. It's, it's oh, But let's get yeah, back should, to the garden. Should,
1: yeah, we should be the Garden State, not Jersey. I mean, come on.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Okay. <laughs> so, from what I recall, let's just touch on your early history. Is is uh, I think mom bought you a Japanese guitar for like thirty five bucks and you had an interest in it, and then you kind of picked it up a little later.
2: We were in the city one day, and we were driving along on a bus, and there was like a hawk shop somewhere in Manhattan, and uh, we used to live in Brooklyn when I was young. I was was born in Bay Ridge. And anyway, so we're going along the avenue, and there was a, a store, and in the window, there was this beautiful red sunburst guitar. What happened was, we went into the store, and it was, I remember it was $12. They wanted $12 for it. And wow. I picked it out. And the guy took it down. He says, this is cardboard. And I'm like, I, I didn't really, I was like, oh, in other words, it wasn't that good of an instrument. So for like right. $16, he gave me one that was actually real wood. My mother was like, oh my God, another like three or four bucks. I mean, this is, this is 1965 or something, bro. I'm yeah, like, sure. Five. Right. So that's the guitar I got. So that was that one. My first electric guitar was about 35 bucks. It was in the old Sam Ash over on uh, King's Highway in Brooklyn. And that, I wish yep. I still had that. I sold it to a friend of mine as a kid for like 15 bucks. I wish I still had that. I still have it, you know what I mean? A guitar like this was probably $25 brand new back in like 61, right. 62, or even like around 64, say. So when the Beatles were on television, okay, the next day mm-hmm. Sears must have went berserk with parents or around Christmas time and birthdays to get their kids a guitar because they, wanted, they saw the Beatles play. They're a little more expensive because Baby Boomers that had that, and they brought it into the bathtub, or they brought it outside and played baseball with it after a couple of years, <laughs> right? and the thing's destroyed. Now they want to get it again, so they look for it, so they're, you know, they're going for a little bit of money when you find one, you know what I mean, so it's like that.
1: So let me ask you this, did, did mom and dad have an influence? Obviously mom said okay and saw some sort of talent or, or a budding of a talent there, but were they musical at all? Or you know, did music run in your family?
2: My mom wasn't. Uh, She, you know, she was an Irish German um, housewife. She didn't work. She was the woman who took care of my brothers. I had three brothers, actually. I have three brothers still. Wow. Okay. um, Great. Love them dearly, by the way, if they're out there. And um, all right. My my dad was. My dad was extremely. I mean, influential is not even a word. I mean, it it was like my my, my father was a um, a designer for Grumman aircraft, and uh, he was a painter. My dad. So he tried to get me into the whole. Uh, system of like, you know, drawing. He showed, you know, the paint, the whole thing. I remember smelling the the, the, the paint, the, um, the linseed oil. I could still smell it. I, I think of him. But if I, oh, for some reason, if I smell sure. paint somewhere, I think about it because he had it in the house. But what he did was, he was a tinkerer too. He was a guy who, my father knew a little bit about everything. Whatever, right. you, whatever you said or asked, he would know. I would ask him. I wouldn't even go to the encyclopedia. I'd say, you know, dad, blah, blah, blah. And he would know something about it. That's he was like mm. very, very well read. I don't know how he had any time, but he was like so well read and stuff like that. But anyway, so back to the thing. He made this thing, it was called the Heath Kit back in the sixties. Oh, I know the Heath it was. Kit. It was like, yeah, Heath Kit. So this it was he had like this palette or this these uh, instructions to make a uh, a speaker cabinet. And we right. had a fifteen inch sure. speaker inside it. And he had a Macintosh receiver, which was amazing, um at the time. It was tubes, the whole you see the tubes and everything in it. Yeah. And yeah. Um, and he used to play. He loved classical music. He loved he loved opera. He loved like ballet. He loved all classical stuff. And my brothers when they were very young were turned on to like you know the, the music of the time. I'm the youngest in my family, so my oldest brother's 72. I'm 62. So okay, back in, in the 60s, he was 10 and 60. So he was obviously he was started buying records when he was about 11 or 12. I, then my other brother started doing the same thing during like the hippie years and stuff. And one one brother was into folk. He loved that stuff. My brother Tommy, my brother, he's out there. My brother Tom, Love him to death. Um, brother TK, Timmy, he was like more of a hippie blues from England. Um, a lot of stuff, a lot of American music. He was into that. And my oldest brother, said we were seventy two. He was the ops. He loved Elvis and and all the wow. all the, the great Italian um, uh, vocal groups of the of the, the yeah Dion
1: and the Belmonts and all oh that. Oh my God,
2: sure. he's, he was he's Dion nuts. I mean, he's still, you know, it's just unbelievable. And Dion's but, going um,
1: strong too, man.
2: He, yeah, he is. You know, a friend of mine uh, who played horn with me a couple of times, Arno Hecht, um, he plays the, the horn with him. He plays on all his albums. He played the Rolling Stones still, oh. but he, played, he plays him. He's great. Wow. Arno, he, he's playing around. He plays around a lot of people. He's great. And, um, but anyway, so he made. So my brothers all got so involved, my father, with the whole thing. So he was very influential and all that stuff. And having that like that. We always had a great stereo. Always had that stuff. My brothers right. were always like hip on buying that way of stuff, and I was like a young kid hearing it all the time. So, and my older brother he played guitar. He was the. I remember going to the store with him. My dad brought uh-huh. him a um, a Mustang, I found a Mustang in '65, a red, wow. beautiful red, like a fire engine red. It's called Dakota Red. And I remember going yeah. to the store. I remember the way the case smelt. I remember the whole thing about it. I was like, so psyched. <laughs> it was great. But that really it's, turned me on big time. But it's, it's funny. I would hear music on the radio, blah, blah, blah. But I watched my brother actually play it, you know what I mean? So it was like, it was right there. And that's what really, I mean, it blew me away when all the time, so that was great. I,
1: I always find the influences of, you know, my, my dad was into the classical music uh, as well. Right. My dad was a tinkerer. The Grumman thing is really interesting because I grew up in Bethpage. Everybody hmm. that I knew worked for Grumman or a subsidiary that fed Grumman, uh, some engineers and stuff like that. You know, just really an interesting company at the time that really fed uh, Long Island but I also look at my, my older siblings my, my sisters I had twin sisters and, and uh, an older sister who was four years older than me and their albums had a big influence on me so my twin sisters hmm. who are 11 years older than me wh- uh, hmm. one like the Beatles and one like the, the Beach Boys that was the split
3: you wow, know so okay. I got
1: the best of both worlds of you know when they locked their albums up in their room I you know I learned how to break locks and uh, listen <laughs> to the albums to get that influence. Oh yeah 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 there is, you go. Which is is really great. So, did your other siblings continue with music, or were you the one who really kind of, uh, you know? Yeah, got one into one the brother.
2: Industry? He he's a guitar builder. Actually, the one the guitars I play, um, are guitars oh, he wow. built, and um, that's uh that's like my main thing. It's it's interesting because it's a telly type body. What he did was he took he he went to school actually for learning how to build instruments out in. It's uh, called Roberto Ven. It's out in Arizona, I think it was, or maybe it was Colorado. Hmm. somewhere Okay. There. And, um, but he went there to learn how to how to build stuff, and he came back and he kept building. He still is into, like Luthier stuff, and um, he took a Telecaster and he traced it by hand and he did the whole thing actually by hand. And that's the guitar I play. Mm. It's a hollow Telecaster, but uh, but it's my oh, own nice. sound, too. It's like I feel like it's my own thing. I mean, I I try to emanate you know blues music and this and that blah, blah blah. But it's my own you know thing. In other words, like you know, I always say you know with an instrument, it's it's like 90%, you know, the, the physicalness of it or the, the, the way it, it all works. No, no, i tell you the truth, 90% is, is you. And about 10%, that's it, is the mechanics of what's okay. going on. That, that's how you get a Santana or a, or a Jerry Garcia, or I remember seeing Peter Frampton one time when I was younger, mm-hmm. and uh, he played an acoustic guitar and it sounded just like he does. Like there was no, right. there was nothing, there was nothing, no trickery. And his hand just yep. made it sound like him. Jerry Garcia, too. There's an acoustic album with him, with, uh, with David Grisman. They have a couple of albums together playing acoustic. And you can just tell it's him in three or four notes. It just, you know, it doesn't have to be right. through the amps and through that stuff. So a lot of it is, is what you're purveying, how your hand is and how, how things are. That's what makes everybody so individual on guitars that are the same. You have five guys on a Stratocaster, but five guys are sounding different. Even though it's the same instrument, right. it's still like, it's their own hand doing it, you know. So, but, um, Why don't we do this? Let's,
1: I'm, really interest, I'm really interested... Now you found your voice in the blues, okay, and and some other genres that we can, we can speak of. What I find fascinating about the blues is, um, and if you know the history of the blues, it's a call and response from the fields of, uh, you know, in the delta of uh, the back and forth or the ebb and tide between the singer and his audience. Now I want to I want right. to point something out that uh, so I watched you. Uh, I went to the. Um, Long Island Blue Society uh, um, fundraiser for the trip to Memphis uh, yesterday. Uh, it was on a Sunday at the warehouse. And something I really like what you did is you really, uh, one, you can be a very proficient performer, but you cross into being in a, a showman and an entertainer in the best way in that you engage the audience. I think it was the sh- song uh, Jelly. Oh, Sugar Jelly. Like jelly. Um,
2: Shaking, shaking, like, shaking jelly. like jelly. Shaking like
1: jelly, yeah. Yeah, and, and you immediately engaged the audience, and you called people, particularly females, to come up and dance. And not everybody recognizes that you need to engage that audience. And I, I, I saw that immediately, how you did that, and I thought that was really great. Because people go to have fun, you know, to hear music. Music well, changes yeah, I, you a lot i always you know, <coughs>
2: felt, blues music can be, you know, there, there's a certain um, seriousness about it, obviously, mm-hmm. and... And this and that. There's a, you know, it's funny. Some people think it's simplistic, and it could be in a um, in, in a uh, what word I'm looking for. Not in a modal way, but in like a um, uh, musical foundation. Yeah, could you of break how it down the to the chords.
1: technique, the twelve yeah, yeah. bar? it's all only that. a couple of chords. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, what I mean, in a lot of ways, it's a you know, and and a lot of people can play three chords. But if you can play it where it's really it has the feel of it. There's a certain thing I remember an old friend of mine, a guitar player friend, he passed away recently actually, a very, very nice guy. He um, he told me, he goes, he goes, I don't know. He goes, I, I listen to Sunhouse, I listen to Muddy Waters, but I find myself keep going back to Stevie Ray Vaughan all the time. And like he, he mm-hmm. kinda like missed out Oh, I think he misses the boat on there's a mood there. And as soon as you understand what the mood is, that's where you can understand where these people are coming from and, and why they are who they are. You know, as, as, a, young, as a young kid, my, I was maybe around 11 or 12, my brother, I, I had on um, Layla on, the album Layla, and mm-hmm. I was listening to Abbey of Love, a Woman, and I was trying to figure out the notes and just sit there playing. So my brother goes, hold on a second, my older brother, the one who built the guitar, and he says, hold on. So mm-hmm. he put on an album called Live at the Regal by B.B. King. It's a live album from the Regal Theater. In Chicago. Sure. 64. And it's B.B. It's, it's King's best best record, I think. I have a, his singing, everything mm-hmm. is just amazing on it. And he put it on, and the first couple of notes I heard, I says, wow, it sounds like Eric. And he goes, no, 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 no. <laughs> Eric sounds like him. You don't understand. This is before right. Eric. This is before. This is where it comes from. These guys take you from that. So the education I got from that was interesting. Mm. Guys like Clapton, Page, Beck, I mean, all of the greats of like the, the British blues, guys excuse me, Peter Green of course Mick Taylor all these monsters of that genre John Mayall just was was the the, the, the root of it all you know I mean a lot of, Alexis Corner another guy the root of all these guys mm-hmm. so what what it is is that I found that I could get my education like they did what did they listen to instead of me getting it secondhand and being a secondhand you know copy of something else you know a, a next generation a right. regeneration something I want to know where they got there, how they did what they did, and that was the best education ever to see that, to feel that, and how he, my brother did that. He showed me. This is what it is, and I got, I delved into it. When I first did, it was so, it was so odd, it was so weird. The music, it was so. I remember my mother walking into the room and going, "What is this music? Was was this blues?" <laughs> I'm like, "Yeah." I said, no, "I was really, you know, I'm really big take about it." She goes, "Ah, oh, it's great, you know." But it's like it's really it's really funny how. People just don't, they, they want to be Steve Ray Vaughan. And I can tell what they're playing sometimes. Like, they're, they're playing good. They're playing really fast. They're playing blah, blah, blah. But they're lacking that a couple of notes that are going to be a little slower. And they're going to grab you. B.B. King can grab you with one note. The guy plays mm. one or two notes. I know it's B.B. King. And I had the pleasure and the, the graciousness of, I thank God and the person who got me the shows. But I, I played, I opened up with B.B. King three times. And wow. um, it was the most amazing thing to actually hear him do it. He's a little, he was in his older age, but still it was like, mm-hmm. here's the, you know, it's the, it's the Beatles of the blues, like standing right, you know, there he is. It's the Rolling Stones. It's the greatest thing, you know what I mean? And, and he crossed over to like, you know, popular people know him. Everybody, he played, you know, I don't know how many gigs a year, but everybody knows the word BB King, the name BB King. People might know, sure. you know, Buddy Guy, blah, 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 Robert Johnson, not many you know, people know them now, but like some of these greats and mm-hmm. a monster. But BB King was—it's on everybody's list. you know BB King, is, you know. And right, it, it, that's you know. You're right. Like you said, when you listen to the greats like that, you you get this mood, and it's 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 a mood. If you don't have the mood, or you can't emanate the mood, or understand it, then it, it's hard to you know, purvey it. I think you know.
1: Yeah, so it's 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 yeah. interesting. And if you look at the way you approached something, you I know you love. Uh, and And you go to the origins, and you want to you want to get the influence in your way the way Clapton got it, or anybody else got it what yeah and I just want to talk about the one other thing about the blues and and, and you, you be honest with me is what I like about the blues it can be solemn, it can be uh, lamenting uh, how horrible things are, but it, it can come back into light uh, and what I like from a knucklehead in the audience, at least this is the feeling I get in many blues songs is, wow, somebody else feels the way I felt. I'm not the only one who feels this way about a certain thing, you know, that you might be um, worried about or what have you. Uh, and that's what I like about the, the blues and the back and forth, the Ebb and Tide, uh, the mm. back and forth between the audience and the singer and, and, and the instruments really, when you come down to it, you know, listening to you play slide guitar after Either you sing a verse or somebody else sings a verse. That is a really beautiful back and forth. That's an interpretation of what's coming from my soul in a vocal and through your fingers on the slide guitar. I think it's kind of amazing.
2: You know, you know something too is uh, when you think of an individual or a musician, and you kind of like you single them out, say you know as a as a, a virtuoso or whatever it is you want to call mm-hmm. somebody. Um, it, it 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 doesn't happen by itself. You need a good band, number one. Yes. If you don't have a good band, what what you do? I can't say you know. I, I don't get on people's talent or whatever. Blah, blah, blah. It's just sometimes the chemistry might not be there, so they could be good for something else. You know what I'm saying? But mm-hmm. for like what I do, what I like to do is I have like the greatest like backing band. I have I have a really really fantastic solid drummer Mario Bastiano, who play with um, got that rhythm section. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and and he was with um, Savoy Brown, and Kim Simmons, the mm. uh, the guitar player, just passed away. It's really sad. Mm. And um, Kim Simmons from the '60s. So he was in that band, and so was my bass player, Jerry. Jerry was in the band first, and mm. got Mario to play with him. And, and um, they're so tight. They're so I don't. Even, I'm not even listening. That's how tight it is to me. And so I don't have to listen. I just I'm just riding on that that wave with them. I'm just like I'm just we're in the same place, the same boat, in the same head. And sometimes I'm playing with people and I have to kind of think what I'm doing. And if I don't have to think, it's the greatest feeling when, you, when you're like that. And I, I, I give a blessing to everyone. I say, I hope mm-hmm. that everybody out there, if you're in a band, can find people like that, that you play with. And it's so, it's just perfect. And so I could, I could, just, I could just sit there and I'd close my eyes and just be in another world and just, I know they're with me and that we're all, it's really, it's really something. It's, it's a great feeling. It really is. It's, it's a drug feeling. It's a, it's whatever you want to call it, a euphoric thing, you know, that makes it happen. And, and, you know, some nights it's really just amazing. I can feel, you know, just really taking off. All nights aren't going to be good. That's another thing, too, to a musician is to a band. It can't always be, you have to have bad gigs once in a while because then you don't know what mm-hmm. the good ones are because it's just like raining and having it sunny out. It's like you don't know what the sunshine mm-hmm. is. And be so psyched about it unless you had three days of rain. So if you have a couple of bad gigs, or if you feel like you've had bad... I've had people come up to me, I, I feel like I, I really played just awful, I think, oh my God. And people come up to me and say, right. oh, look, I never saw you play ever better. And I'm like, why are you watching? Are you watching this? Are you watching the TV? Like, what are you doing? You know, I mean, I don't, you know, but it's funny how... But when I feel like I'm doing my personal best, or I feel like I'm in a zone, that's that's the greatest feeling, you know what I mean? And uh, like I said, and well, having you know, it's, a backing band like these people just you know is the best. What's,
1: what's interesting, what, what I'm pulling from that is um, so I used to uh, I used to give homilies and stuff in another life, and uh, I learned <laughs> wow. a great great lesson. I was a deacon in the Catholic Church, and mm-hmm. uh, our homiletics teacher told us he goes, "It's not what you think you said; it's what the audience heard, and that's the feedback mm-hmm. that you know you like you said." I, I was really off today, but they heard something fantastic. They heard something different than I heard, you know. Uh, and that's probably that's probably a good lesson for a musician. It depends on what the audience audience hears and sees and experiences. And yeah, people I'm sure have come up to you and say, you know, that made me cry, you know, or whatever. You know, it brings that emotion. Yeah.
2: touching people like that, like like as you, yourself, as a deacon. I'm, I'm a Catholic also, so I got I got my mm-hmm. I got my my cross on my arm. And, uh, from, yeah. from Ireland Mine's up there. but up um, there you go <laughs> oh and on your arm yeah right right well I'm I mean, on right there, yeah, my little my Celtic Cross Celtic Cross no, yep I um I, I I yeah I understand what you're saying because when you did that and you know you're trying to get through to people as a musician also I'm trying to get through to people I'm trying to like you know purvey something you know what I mean I'm trying to sell something not monetarily but as like an artist, I'm trying to sell something to get through to sure. somebody. You know what I mean? And that's, that's the, the, the key to it. But you don't know who you're getting through to. So I learned after a while just to not give an excuse and say, oh, thank you. Because it really could. So I don't want to sway what they felt or thought. I'd rather just say, oh, thank you very much. You heard, you heard something good. That's great. And I'll go and I'll just, you know, you're only as good as your last movie, as they say. You know what I mean? And, uh, yeah. the yeah. last book or last gig. That's, that's the way I feel about stuff. And sometimes I'll come home, like, really euphoric, like, really high about not being able to sleep even, just having a great, great, oh, man, it's a great time tonight. This is great, da, da da You know what I mean? And some nights I feel like uh, I just got to practice more or something. You know? I'll, I'll woodshed for a couple of days, uh, which is always good. Woodshedding is always a great thing.
1: Ab- absolutely. Don't don't make me depressed because then I got to dust off my guitars. Hey, let's do this, uh- um, Kerry. Let's just take a quick break. And I want you to play a song for our audience uh, when we come back. So sure. stick with us, everybody more interesting stuff to come. I promise you. At the Long Island Sound, we're much more than a podcast. We're building a community. Please go to gigdestiny.com. Check out all our social media links. Subscribe wherever you listen to the podcast. Please comment. Call the listener line. Tell us what you think, what questions we should ask, who we should have on the show. And most of all, we thank you for your generous support. And remember, support the artists who are guests on the show. Now back to the podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Steve Yusko, your host, and I am fortunate enough to have Kerry Carney with us. Kerry's going to play some music for us, so take it away, Kerry.
2: This is my trusty old Silvertone. This is another early 60s Silvertone, actually. And um, there's something about it. It's all veneer wood. It's not solid, but it has such a the, the sound that a lot of those guys look for. And a lot of the old uh, blues guys didn't really have any money back then, so they went for a cheap instrument like that. That's why it always killed me when you Ooh. saw Clapton playing, um, hanging out with a, um, a really, really rare Martin guitar from like the 1930s that nobody could afford back then. And he's wearing a, a $5,000 Armani <laughs> suit playing blues. It's always, it always got me, so. But here we go. Tell us about the slide first. I had contacted the man from Rocky Mountain Slides a while ago about, uh, about getting a slide, maybe checking it out. And he sent me a whole bunch of them, and he, and he actually put me in one of his ads. For this for the slide, which oh, is great. Wow. But this slide is um, actually a little while. I'll, I'll bring my other slides around. I have a whole collection of slides. I'll show you different things. But uh, this is actually Excellent. made out of some kind of some kind of, uh, some kind of rock, some kind of you know mineral or something like that. It's really really wild. This red piece, here. It's got like little like veins. and look like little spider webs. And um, it's, it's got <laughs> weight to it too. It's it's a the more weight I find the better, and the higher the action. In other words, higher the strings are off the guitar, the better the um, right. But the tone is, and it has like a little bit of sustain, sound. Like
1: Let me ask you a novice question about a slide: Are they sized the way you would size a ring on a finger? Yeah,
2: absolutely. I mean, some guys use really their pinky. A lot of guys, you know, pinky guys like that. Um, guys like I think Johnny Winter, I think plays on his on his pinky, he plays a a big um, a metal slide. I have a couple of those i can show you later. Here's a copper slide or a brass mm-hmm. slide. Uh, this is the Dwayne the Dwayne type is the one on this finger here on the. The uh, the ring finger. Derek Trucks, of course. (laughs) I can't think. Um, A lot of guys use it like that. Some people, Joe Walsh, Dickie Betts, and um, Bonnie Raitt played on the middle finger, which I I I find very awkward. Take it away. Okay. I didn't that, that notice was, the thing. It's, it's jazz. It's jazz.
1: <laughs> yeah, When you when you string a guitar for a slide, do you use a particular type of string?
2: Yeah, I use a heavier string. This this is actually, it's a little lighter. Than, these are 11s. Uh, okay. A heavier string would be like a 12. They call it lights, but they're, they're actually kind of heavy, 12s. Uh, but okay. the way this neck is, the neck's a little bowed. It's a little bent. It's a little like bow and arrow right here, which is what you want, because yep. you want the it to be high sure. like that. If you're playing a slide like that, you want that that distance between the frets in there. And interesting about slide, if you're a a novice slide player out there or you want to learn how to play slide, I'm playing, Mm -hmm. when you hit a note, okay, what's happening is the fret in front of your finger is making the the note. It's making the sound of the note. So if I'm going like this, it's right here that's making Mm -hmm. the sound. This is behind the note, okay? If I'm playing a slide, mm-hmm. I got to play on the fret itself. So if here's right. the fret, right. I'm behind it, but there's the, the metal piece. The metal fret mm-hmm. is where the actual tone is. So, right. so when I'm playing.
1: And you're bending your arm a little bit more differently than you would be playing a chord because you're twisting it a little bit to be parallel to that fret, correct?
2: Yeah, and you got to be kind of like straight across. If you, if, I'll give mm-hmm. you an example. Here's a, here it is, like, just here's a, here's a C chord. But if I, if I had, if I was bent, it would be like... It's a little out of tune. Oh, you got to be like right sure, on top sure. of it. So that takes a little, a little technique, too, at the same time. And also, I'm also dampening behind... The, the, the slide if I but didn't dampen it would sound like this but with dampening right. beyond it it goes because I'm stopping this the string noise. This is the hardest part of the slide not the slide itself is this hand because what I'm doing is when I'm picking I'm mm-hmm. I'm holding other strings down so if I play the last string the three strings I'm holding this mm-hmm. holding those two. I'm holding those two, and then I'm going to go down, and and these are holding these strings down. If I didn't do right, that, so it you're I'd be dampening. Like this. But dampening is yeah, I'm dampening it down like that. It's like, right? You know, it's funny. Nice. I learned how to do that pretty easy, but it is a whole another ball game when you have to dampen strings when you're playing it. And if you're doing it quickly, that's the that's the part. It's like almost like typing. You get your fingers Yeah, it's like almost that. like like
1: when you play a banjo and you have the roll going, I guess, with your
2: fingers to some degree. The only thing different, though, is that you're not dampening strings, though. When you're doing it, th- I'll tell you what. Uh, hold on a second. Let me do this really quick. Oh, hey, we're getting I a free,
1: free a- lesson. Nice. nice.
2: I don't, uh, I have a couple of off-stop guitars. Nothing really too expensive, though, because I find I don't mm. play off-stop guitars a lot, so it'd be kind of... A waste for me to have like a beautiful L five or something well, I'd like. Well, I have one, but so this is this is a this is a thing pick and picking. This is like a, like a Mississippi John Hurt type things. So. I do that a lot. I think I pick a lot. I sit down, you know, did it like that.
1: Gotcha. Hey, let's, let's do this. Cause I found the story so interesting as far as, you know, everyone, you know, when you made that break uh, or you got that break. Um, and if I recall, you were about just to go into the police department. So maybe you could pick it up from there and, and tell people how you went on this um, five year sojourn in your career, early in your career.
2: A friend of mine lived in California. He was the uh, the road manager for uh, the Jefferson Starship, the airplane at one time and back in the 60s and stuff like that. And what he did was he ran an old church for Marty Bowen. He was the um, the caretaker of the church, uh, the Church of San Anselmo. Okay. Cool. It's north of San Francisco, right next to, uh, it's near Sausalito. It's near Mill Valley. It's near, oh, it's beautiful. a whole hub of all these beautiful towns that are there. So we were talking one night, I used to talk to him all the time on the phone. First he said, bring your band mm-hmm. out. I have an opening for you guys. You want to open up a this band called Cantor, Ballon and Cassidy, and it was Marty Bowlin, Paul Cantor, and Jack Cassidy of Hot uh, Tuna on the airplane.
3: Yeah, sure. And they, they
2: had so so it was them, Big Brother and the Holding Company, and us. We were the opening band, and um, it was at the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco. This beautiful, beautiful theater mm-hmm. at this beautiful. It was it was like a like a like a Roman rustic big area there. It's gorgeous, so, you know, all the beautiful sandstone and stuff they made it out of. So, so anyway, so so my band and my we flew out they took care of everything we did the opener we did our little bean did whatever we did and uh, after we I walked off the stage Marty Ballin came up he ran up to me he says, holy smoke he goes you're you know, a great guitar player blah 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 and I thought he was being nice you know I thought he was just being, right. like, being friendly to me being generous I like, yeah you know, I was like kind of like you know I felt oh great so whatever so time went on a few months went down the line and went home you know that week, whatever. So months, months, months will come by. I was already to go into the academy. I was all probably about another about another month. I was already to go in to be a New York City police.
1: Team. So you passed the test and everything. You were ready everything, to go.
2: All, everything like my, my psychological, which is kind of odd, but all that stuff. Everything was everything <laughs> was fine. So he just called. He said, "I said, listen, I got to go. You know, next month. Well, I'm not really too happy with that. I got to, you know, change my whole ways of doing things." And he was like saying, "Get on a plane. Just get on a freaking plane and come out of here. Just." just come on out, I have guitars here, We get, it's beautiful, it's gorgeous out here, the, the weather is beautiful, come on out, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I went out there, and I didn't know, but he called Marty Ballin, and he said, that, that that kid is here, you like, I was like 27 or something, that, that kid is okay. here, That you like the way he played. So I didn't notice. so he came over, and I'm sitting on the couch, and he walked in, and I was like, oh, hey, how you doing? And he goes, hey, what's going on, you want to jam a little bit? I said, sure. So we, we played a little couple of tunes, in about an hour. Just the two out. of you? Just me and him, yeah, on a couch. Okay, and he said, um, he goes, listen, I'm coming back tomorrow with some stuff. Do you, you, uh, you, want, you want to work some, something out with me? I'm doing, are you here for a while? I said, yeah, I'm here for about a week or so. And he goes, okay, I gotta, I gotta, I'll bring some songs if you want to work it out. I'd like to see what you think, what your ideas are with it. And I said, okay, what the hell? So we played mm-hmm. the next day. After we played, he says, listen, I'm going on tour for three months, and I need a guitar player. I'd love you to play with me. I'd love you to be my guitar player. And I was like, wow. I, I just, you know, I mean, I didn't balk at it for a second about that I was going to go to the academy. Yeah, like, it's like, Holy smoke. So I, I called back home. I got all my gear together, put all my stuff on a plane, flew it out there. I didn't know how long, it was going to be three months, you know what I mean? So I, we got there. So sure, for about, anything can happen. So we were going out February 1st, actually. So for like a month or so, I had to learn like 60 songs and all this stuff. So I would, I would sleep there. I mean, that's where I stayed, at the, on the couch of this big church. Mm. And one day downstairs... I heard this song, that's called Combination of the Two, and it's a Janis Joplin song from Big Brother and the Holy Company, I heard a band playing it in the big band room they had downstairs, it's all this big, the old church, was the, the whole church area was all sprayed with stuff to stop the, damp dampen the whole area, you know what I mean? I'm hearing this music, and I walk downstairs and I peek in, and it's Big Brother and the Holy Company, without Janis of course, another woman playing, but this, every guy mm-hmm. in the band was in the band still, he was still playing. I was like, wow. wow. So I'm looking, through, I'm looking through the glass. And the, the guitar player like waved me and like, hey, come on in. What's going on? And I was like, how are you doing? I was like, yeah, I'm Kerry. I'm, I'm, I'm Marty's new guitar player. You know, I'm playing with him. And they're like, oh, great. Blah, blah, blah. So we start talking guitar. And all of a sudden that mm-hmm. night, I had a gig with him. He played, he was a guitar player, Sam Andrew, really sweetheart. And he's, he's gone now. I love him so much. He's great. And I really miss him. And he um, he said, you know, I have a band. We, we do like a, 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 I play horn. I uh, play sax, drummer, bass player. Would you play guitar? And I was like, I'd love to. So, for those wow. like that month, as I was making a little extra money, I was going out playing with him like every night, like in the area, like just local stuff. It was oh, amazing. That's how cool. great it was. But that was a great thing. So, as I'm doing that, and in the daytime, I practice with the band with Marty. We learn songs and stuff like that. One day, a bus came by, a big tour bus came right outside the place. A big Eagle, it's called Eagle Coach, it's 45 feet. It sleeps okay. twelve people, twelve bunks. Got a, a, a stateroom in the back. It was unbelievable. Had, had a chair right next to the when you walk in the door. There was there's a chair right there you could sit in a seat and right next to the to the to the driver. And I sit there and I used to jam, and he used to sing. He used to love singing and stuff like that all night long. Got a cup of coffee. We played, you know, it'd be great. That thing came. They they went downstairs, got my gear, threw it underneath into the into the cargo. I got on the bus and I didn't come back for five years. I was on the road. I mean, I played every big city every state except Alaska or Hawaii of, of, really? on the continent of, of the United States, uh, North America, everywhere. I played everywhere, every every place.
1: You know what's amazing? That got education it. you get. Now, now, I'm in sales, and this has nothing to do with music, but early in my career, I got to travel a lot. And mm. in the beginning, there's <clears throat> something romantic about it. You know, you're a road warrior, you get to think, you get to write, you're in your own bubble on the bus. And that's why a lot of music's written on the road, you know, um, but then it can wear on you. So I, I, I got to ask you, what were the good takeaways from being on the road? And what were some of the things that were difficult about being on the road for you?
2: Well, I'll tell you what, I was thinking about it when you were saying yeah. something like that. The hardest hmm. thing that I found at first was like the first week. And we were, you know, a, a, as a joke in the in the touring industry, they say the way you get a tour and how they map it is Ray Charles plays darts with the United States on the wall. Okay. See, in words, it goes there. Right. It it, it's, it's a stupid, you know, joke, but that, that's a joke that they say. That, that's how, why are you here and why are you there? Why are you in Kansas and then you're doesn't in It doesn't make sense, right. Yeah, but they, they do that. That's how they, they put things together a lot of times. So that's just the way it is. But um, I, mean, I remember playing, it was the third night, and I mean, I, I didn't sleep well. I, I didn't eat well. I drank a lot of coffee. I didn't smoke cigarettes. I was about ninety, you know, nine pounds at the time. And mm. uh, I, was, I was young. And so I would, after a gig, I'd be so psyched. And so like, I can't believe him. You know, I, I have to like, sometimes I close my eyes saying, I'm really here. This is amazing. And then I would mm. play with the driver, the bus driver. His name's Randy. He was, uh, he was a road manager and a driver for, uh, for uh, David Crosby for years. He was his guy.
3: Mm.
2: So we're driving. I play guitar with him all night. We'd be going through Salt Lake City. We'd be, I mean, there's nobody on the road. We're just jamming stuff. And it's great. He you knows every song in the world. I, I played every song that driver knew. I was just saying a song. Anyway, so, uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so. So, I mean, I would do that. And then I'd try to get some sleep. And then all of a sudden, we were at a sound check at like 2 in the afternoon. So we get to a town like 400 miles later. I get up. Set, they would set everything up. And I go up and I do a little sound check and da, da, da. Then I rest a little bit, and then we get on stage. And so by the third night, I really felt it because I really didn't sleep well. And I mm. was like in this euphoric thing going on. And I was like, you know, and there's a little bit of a anticipation before you get on. It's like a, an anxiety a little bit, but a good anxiety. Sure. And so I'm just yeah. about to go on one night, and I said, is this really what I want? Like, is I really want to do yeah. this? And it was, it was a question that I questioned for like literally three seconds. I mean, it was like, this is what it is. I could be doing something else in life that I maybe I'm not going to want to do. And I, I'm blessed to be here. And that was still yeah. also, I got a second wind, and I walked out and played, and it was just fantastic. And that was the last time. I, if I said I have any regrets about something, I never really had the regret. It was more or less just this physical thing that you feel. I could see why people do drugs, though. I could see why people take things to go to sleep. And then if they're so grogged out, they have to take something to get awake. You know what I mean? It's not even partying and, like, let me have a couple of beers and let me, have a, let me get drunk and let me get blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, let me get high. It's more or less, it's a physical thing to, like, make yourself work. You know what I mean? But yeah. I see that, I, no, that, that, you know, so.
1: I, I agree with you. I was, you know, I believe it or not, I was a steam fitter in New York City for a couple of years when I was out of work. Huh. And, you know, uh, at that time, you know, you're going home at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and you're watching guys bring 12-packs on and they're doing physical labor, it's, it's painful. You know, you're know, you up and down ladders and stuff like that, and it obviously we know it complicates your life, but they're almost anesthetizing themselves from pain. To uh, Maybe I'm rationalizing it, you know, that adds more pain to your life when, when uh, you go overboard and stuff like that. And you can see how you get into that um, a cycle, uh, a dangerous cycle, so I'm glad you, know, you also- it.
2: Mm-hmm. Their individual lives, like you don't know what's going on in their personal life. Oh, yeah, right. It, that could be, it could be, you know, doing that too. It's it's that stuff at the same time. So that whole thing, like I really didn't have a personal life in a lot of ways. I was like, literally, I You're was a vagabond living on a tour bus and in hotels. And just, well, that's, you know. That's, but I felt that's a blessing. More, but I felt myself, yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I know that then. I know that now. But yeah. it's like, now it's, it's, it's for me to go out and. Hop on a plane or something like that. Whatever. I used to fly a lot then too. I was always flying, and um, it was that whole thing was something that I don't really like to do anymore. I don't like to fly. I haven't flown in a while. The last time I flew, I went. To, I was played in Ireland about ten or twelve years ago. I did the, the Guinness Blues Festival, and wow. I went to that. No, that was that was pretty wild. Actually, that's where I got my tattoo. Actually, in Ireland. But um, nice. It was. Um, it was. It was something that you know. It's. It's a lot of. It, it's just like all right, is it a glamorous life? People look at it, they, they think about it, they dream of this and that. Yeah. It definitely is in one sense if you look at yourself, if you are something that you don't like to do in life, if you have a job that you hate. And as the old saying goes, if you can do in life what you love, you never work a day in your life.
1: Right, right.
2: To me, that's, that's basically it. I mean, I really – there are times I'll, I'll complain about something – and I'm like, what am I complaining about? I can't complain. This is ridiculous. You know what I mean? Yeah. You, you know, what's
1: interesting about being a, sorry to cut you off, being a vagabond Absolutely. and being free, you know, um, on the contrary, when I, I did a lot of traveling by plane <laughs> and I was right. married early in our, in our marriage and the weirdest feeling is coming home to your own bedroom and the Hampton Inn is more familiar to you because they're all the same, okay? Oh, yeah? But the other thing was a chat. Yeah. The other thing, the challenge was for me is if there's not because men, we always like to fix things, you know. So if the spouse is having difficulty with something or, God forbid, you Mm -hmm. you leave angry with each other or something happens and you're away for four days. uh, That's that's a a tough position to be in. So I can understand people with families, you know, uh, that's why they bring them on the road, you know, so that they can still be in community together and go for that. Um, Yeah. other thing I struggled mm -hmm. with, you know. So you have, so when you're with your band, you have, you have community with you, you know, so, um, you know, and that, that has its own struggles too, to a certain degree. So, so you did, let me ask you this. So you did it for five years. Why did it stop? Why did it just keep Uh,
2: going? He, well, well, with the band that I was playing with him, he moved to Florida, he got married, moved to Florida and I still stayed on with him. I mean, for a little while, you know, we still play it together, but that brings you to the next chapter. When I came home, um, a dear friend of mine financed. A, I, I did an album with Marty, um, a CD in New Hampshire, and it was mm-hmm. a it was called um, it was called GWE. It was a company that this magazine. It was the only digital magazine. It was like at its infancy, pretty much. Uh, it was a oh, okay. CD review magazine, actually. They started signing some people. They signed Joe Walsh. They signed. A, they did stuff with, with all these people, and Marty was one of the guys mm-hmm. they did it with. And so, we, I did an album with him with that. We did a lot of promotion for that too. It was interesting. And um, all over the place. And we went out with an album. And they asked me if if, they, if, if I would do an album with them, the company. You know what I mean? And, and at that time, Marty was going to Florida after the whole tour we did and stuff like that. And
3: um, mm-hmm.
2: I ended up going home to New York where I am now. And I, a, a friend of mine helped finance it actually. He was a doctor friend of mine, very, very, very. And what he did, what his job was, besides being a doctor's pathologist, he worked for Ron Delsner. And what he would do is he would go to a concert oh. for insurance purposes, and he would be the doctor on call. And him doing that, he was in everybody's pocket. Everybody was, you know, he knew everybody that was, had mm. come in and out of what was going on, blah, uh, blah. And um, so there was this one man, his name was John Paul Dell, his name was. And John Paul Dell, if you look him up, P O D E L L John Poe no D E L L John Paul Dell. He he used to work for um, I think Philip Morris something like that like years when and and he was probably those national Nash and Youngs like agent at one time. I mean David Geffen was like their personal guy and John Paul Dell was right. the guy that in the gigs. So back then, so what happened was he got a little bit down in his luck and he was on a park bench. He was he had nothing. And what wow. happened was he. A couple of guys that he used to work with came and got him and said, listen, we got to, John, you you can't do this. You know, you just do, you know, just mm-hmm. for your life, just stay alive. You got to get back. So he ended up getting back, quitting everything. He was, you know, he was straight as a board, did everything, got mm-hmm. back into it again. And uh, they got this, this agency called Evolution, they called it. It was like three or four guys from the old, uh, that, that company. Um, Philip Morris. Is it Philip Morris? Phil, is Phil Morris, the cigarettes.
1: Yeah, cigarette company.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, what's the other one? Phil um, Morris. So Morris. Morris.
1: Uh, yeah, I know what you mean.
2: well, well, well I'll look it up. But anyway, I'm looking up. So, um, <laughs> so, so anyway, so what happened was, so they they got they got together, and they 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 opened this company. So they started taking on a lot of bands that they he used to know. So the Allman Brothers was one of them. Peter Gabriel wow. was one of them. Like always, like big bands. So he got on top of it, and all. Actually, it was with Aerosmith for a little while, and he. Went to Stephen Tyler and said, Steven, you gotta stop smoking. You gotta stop drinking, you gotta clean your act up. And I saw him talk about it one night and he said that, that John Paul Dell got him to stop and he helped him with all the stuff wow. was amazing. So in doing That's that. Great. So a friend of mine, I didn't know this. The album that I did it was called Blow Your House Down. It was called. It was my okay. first uh, like blues record. It was like in ninety five, whatever, ninety six. He gave it to him. I didn't know he gave it to him to, like, you know, just to... and so one morning I got a phone call from somebody and um, it was it was John Paul Dell. I didn't know it was him. I knew mm-hmm. a little bit about him, I didn't know much about him then. And he said to me, the first thing he said, I was half asleep. He goes, Hey man, <laughs> I love the slidey stuff. And I was like, I didn't know how to I was like, Oh, thank you. I was like, what, what what's going on? And he goes, Listen, I'm going out of my boat today with a couple of friends. We're gonna, I'm gonna listen to it again, I'm gonna play it for them, and I'll give you a call later on. I said, Great. Okay. I'm on the phone, I went back to sleep. My friend, the doctor right. called me. He said, Did he did he call you? I'm like, who? He goes, <laughs> I was the Allman Brothers agent. I'm like, Are you kidding me? I was like, holy wow. smoke. So he called so he called me back later, like maybe the next day. He said, Listen, I love what you're doing. And we gotta get you another record deal. We gotta make a new record. This is an older record. We'll make a new record. I'll put you with the Allman brothers. I'll put you on tour with them. And that's what we'll do. Wow. We need one age we need one record company and that's it. So I went and met him with the band was at the time. I went and met him at this this restaurant uptown on Madison Avenue, it was called La Sans Collate. And what that okay. means in French, it means the dirty underwear. That was <laughs> the first name of the restaurant. Okay, it was crazy. Right. So we went there. We had dinner. We talked. Blah, 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 blah. blah a lot of talk, a lot of talk. Great, great. He says, listen, I'm I'm sending a record company down. They're a new label. They're a, they're a jazz label that wants to get into blues. And I think they'd be great for you. Okay. Because they're smaller, they'll do a lot of work. It's not gonna like we're not gonna be stuck in some company that's not gonna that's gonna put you aside. These guys wanna put money behind you. What you need, they're gonna do it. It was a lot of money, but it was enough. So we're right. playing a Manny's car wash. Manny's car wash uptown. Oh sure, Manhattan. Yep. Manhattan, yeah. Third Avenue, I think Third Avenue and like eighty something street. Right? I used to play mm-hmm. the, we used to play it all the time. So Saturday night, he sends these guys down. Two guys walk in, the door to come in the back back room. He says, hey Kerry Khan, how are you doing? We're here to see you. We want to check you out. And I was like, Great. So we're sitting there talking about stuff. They, we have a label. They said, da. No big deal. Right. We get on, we could play. The place was like like a sardine can. It was so crowded. Wow. And it was long. I went back. And they were I saw them like near the back, like they were having a drink. I, I sent them over drinks, and everything. do guys. Yeah, So anyway, so yeah. well, I start playing. And I, I pull my pick my slide up, I got my Dobro out, first song. I'm playing and I'm just looking out. And in the middle of that song, I saw them walk out the door. Like they left. Oh. Checks out. Oh, man. Boom, 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 boom. That Monday morning, I was signing a record contract. Well, oh, that's all we saw was to have a song. They said, that's it. We knew we, we want to take it. I couldn't you believe must have it. Some
1: guard- you got some guardian angel in your career. That's just well, that's what, sure.
2: what I mean. It was, and, and I was like, you know, it was amazing. So they, their, their recording studio, which is amazing, it was an old horse barn, it was right near New Hope, Pennsylvania, right? Okay. Right across the, the Jersey, right across the... the, the oh, yeah. The There's river. a nice oh, town on both sides of the, yeah. Gorgeous. The French river. town is there. and it's, whatever. But anyway, so yep. we went up there. We probably took maybe about three weeks to record the album. I stayed up there, you know, for a while and just did what you had to do. And um, the album came out and we went out and we went out with the Allman Brothers. We were on secondary stages at first, which is kind of weird. We we played like all these uh-huh. towns in the Midwest, everywhere. But they had like this other stage they were getting on. Then the band would play, and then we graduate. I remember getting the call, one day when I was there playing, and uh, the guy called me backstage. He said, "Carrie, before you come on, I got to talk to you." He says, "Listen, uh, give me a stage plot. What you're doing? Blah blah blah. You're gonna be on with us. With the, with the you're gonna be on the stage with us next couple of shows." It's like, oh my God! So the first big show wow. we did was in um, the Atlantic City, the Taj Mahal. Okay, and my whole whole team. Right. That live like, you know, we live like we live south of Brooklyn actually, pretty much. They got like yeah, busted. All the breezy it point all came to the show. It was unbelievable. Oh, how and beautiful. You played it. It was like, I was like, it's breezy. I mean, the, the place was like a little Madison Square Garden. It was huge I come out I'm like, my breezy in the house. And the place erupted. It was unbelievable. It was so great. And you know what's funny is right outside the doors at at, at the uh it's these, these great big like, you know, concert palaces in these places, in these, in these hotels, in these great big sure, yeah. And uh, I, I remember right outside, it was a bar, a big, like, kind of cool, like, lounge bar. And they had a band uh-huh. playing, like, you know, like, she works hard for the money. I do, do disco music <laughs> after the show. Right. So all my friends from, they all came. They all came with me. There's about 100 people, literally. So I went up to the to the bartender. I said, listen, give me 50 beers. I just played in here, okay. And I, I want to thank all my friends to coming. give me, like, 50 beers right now. And he looked at me. He looked at all the people. He says, all right, hold on a second. So he went like over a little bit. He took out a big pool, uh-huh. pulled it over. And he said to me, he says, give me 50 bucks. I said, 50 Come goes, on. I mean, it was like, it was, I would have cost me who knows what. <laughs> he goes, just give me 50 bucks. Yeah, right? He goes, you see just, just give me 50 bucks. I was like, holy shit. I oh, am sorry. So I get that. No, no, it's all right. It it was, but it was one of the greatest times ever to be. But then, then we went on like through like Chicago and we went. And then Dickie Betts called. After that whole thing, and he was on his own, and I went, went out with him for three months, you know what I mean, with, with the band. It was all over the West Coast, but it's like, and that was all big stage stuff. It was all, like, we were all, like, you know, we graduated to it, but that, I remember that one night. I'll always remember that that night because all my friends were there, and it was all, like, it was just the biggest, greatest feeling. I, I, it's like, I it, that's,
1: like, that's like a picture of heaven on earth, really, when you
2: think about it.
1: Let's do... Let's do this. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, I'd, lo- I'd love you to play another song. I'd like to hear your cool. voice too, uh, oh, cool. and I'd like to uh, explore um, what you know—the wellspring of talent. And look, you've been called the ambassador for Long Island music because um, you really wow. you've helped a lot of people along. So I'd like to uh, do that when we come back for part two of my interview with the fabulous Kerry Carney. Hey, there is so much more to unpack some really great music some wild stories of his career and what he's doing next so stick with us thank you for joining us today i appreciate the time you spent with us please subscribe and comment and visit us at gigdestiny.com Till next time be generous with your joy Keep your spirits high and let the music take you on a journey. Be well. Peace.